Welcome back to another episode of the Abide in the Word podcast. We are your host, Lauren Dick, and I'm here again with Pastor Mike Hovlin. Hello. So we're continuing on in our series on examining Calvinism. we coming to the letter U in the acronym TULIP. And the letter U stands for unconditional election. This is one that is definitely a, a subject or a doctrine that, that draws opposition from people that disagree with the doctrines of grace. So we hope that it'll be an edifying episode today as we again look to uh, uncover what the scriptures teach on the doctrine of election. But before we get into that, Mike, over the last little while with the first few episodes that we've put out in this series, first one being on God's sovereignty and his sovereign decree, and the second one on total depravity, we have some of our most listened to episodes. We've received some questions, some conversation. There's actually been quite a bit of conversation that has been generated from it, and some phone calls, emails, text messages, and definitely some questions that are risen out of it. And one of the questions that seems to come up more times than not is, does God always get his will? Okay, and I would say, yeah, to that one, um, we should kind of jump back to episode five, uh, where we talked about God's will. We talked about his decretive will, his prescriptive will, and uh, hopefully that episode will be helpful on that. That's great. It's definitely, there's a lot of content in that one. So rather than rehash all that, we did also address that a little bit in the first episode in this series on examining Calvinism and God's sovereignty. Another question, if God is sovereign, and I'm kind of paraphrasing maybe several comments, questions together. You know, if God is sovereign, why pray? What is the purpose of prayer if God is absolutely sovereign, already knows what will happen and, and what he'll do, and if he accomplishes his will, then what is the purpose of prayer? Why pray? Just in regard to that, I'll read a couple quotes, and if you want to throw something in afterwards yet, feel free to. But I have a quote here from R.C. Sproul. He says, there is something erroneous in the question. If God knows everything, why pray? The question assumes that prayer is a one-dimensional and is defined simply as supplication or intercession. On the contrary, prayer is multidimensional. God's sovereignty casts no shadow over the prayer of adoration. God's foreknowledge or determinate counsel does not negate the prayer of praise. The only thing it should do is give us greater reason for expressing our adoration for who God is. If God knows what I am going to say before I say it, his knowledge, rather than limiting my prayer, enhances the beauty of my praise. And another quote here from Albert Moeller. Prayer does not inform God of what he does not know, nor does it get him to do what he is reluctant to do. Prayer does not change God, it changes us. This is not to say that God does not command us to pray or that he does not take our desires in prayer seriously. Rather, we must remember that God is sovereign at all times over all things while simultaneously being loving toward his people. Prayer is not our bargaining chip with a reluctant genie. It is our opportunity to commune with the creator and redeemer who loves us. End quote. So the purpose of prayer then is to draw us into fellowship with God, our Father, and depend on him completely as we follow the example of Christ in finding our every need cared for by the creator of the universe, knowing that his peace will guard our hearts and our minds, then we can then find comfort and grace to endure any sufferings, trials, or any other circumstances we find ourselves in, knowing that God is working in us to change us for his glory. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think think it's really helpful, R.C.'s thing there, that it's not just a a one-way thing. Prayer is a, a two-way thing in which we're fellowshipping with God. And as we see what's going on in the world, we're calling out to him. And then he delights to answer our prayers, even though he had already planned to do that. Mm-hmm. Just like in everything that we do, God knows about it. God, God's decreed it. Why do we do anything? Well, because we're real people and we make real choices. And, mm-hmm. and in the same way, in our prayer life, God responds to us in time, even though he's planned before time what he's going to do and what's going to happen. And, and he delights to use his people and he delights to fellowship with his people. And we get to know him through this, this interaction that we have with him that is, that is prayer. And it's, it's not just asking for things, yeah. intercession and supplication. It's also like, like R.C. said, um, confession, adoration, praise. There's, there's other aspects of prayer that that we respond to God and that's our, that's our fellowship with God. And so God's sovereignty doesn't undermine prayer at all. It it makes it 
there's something there. I can I can pray to a God because mm-hmm. He can and is able to do things. And that's been my response too. You know, if God is if God is sovereign over all things, then why pray? In reality, the more pertinent question should be: If He is not sovereign, then why pray? Mm-hmm. If He cannot control, if He is does not get His way, what is the point of praying to Him then, asking Him to do that very thing? Right? Yeah, that's good. If He is not, then why pray? The very reason we know prayer to be effective is because He is the absolute sovereign ruler over all of His creation. We know He will accomplish His will. That is why prayer is effective in that way. And God has ordained the ends. But he has also ordained the means by which he accomplishes those ends. And one of those means is prayer. Mm-hmm. Just like sharing the gospel is an ordained means by which he brings about salvation, right? And so being all-knowing, all-powerful, we can, we can trust in him because of the, that very thing. And so when we pray, we come to him with that confidence now. Not just a blind hope that maybe he will be able to do something if I say this prayer often enough. But I'll be praying earnestly about these things. Uh, about people's salvation, about health, about any other circumstances, suffering, trials, the church. But we have to, again, remember the simple appeal to God assumes that he is able to do something, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good question. And then one more that I'll just quickly address because the series is on discussing Calvinism is someone who approached me and asked, so why is Calvinism important? Why is Calvinism important? And I think that's a, that's a good question. Why are these things important? But the answer, I don't think, lies in the fact that in the title of Calvinism or in the tradition of Calvinism, the answer lies in the fact that Scripture is important and all of God's Word is important, right? From Genesis 1-1 through the end of Revelation, all of God's revealed Word is important. This just happens to be what we believe God teaches, and then it's this theological tradition is defined by what we call Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or or other names it might have. So it's not necessarily that the name Calvinism is important as much as Scripture is important, and this is what we believe the Scriptures teach, hence why in this series we've been digging into verse after verse after verse so far early on, just kind of showing why we believe this, not because John Calvin wrote about it, not because anything Augustine has said, or Spurgeon, or Luther, or or any other man, but we, because we believe this is what the Bible teaches. You know, in that, it's specifically even what the Bible teaches about salvation, and God has designed salvation to glorify himself. And so if we want to glorify God, if we want to know God, we need to study the doctrine of salvation. And what we call Calvinism is really a study of the doctrine of salvation. Who is man in, in total depravity? And then how does God work, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to save us? Father electing the Son in the atonement, um, the Holy Spirit in, in grace and regeneration. Like th- This is the work mm-hmm. of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation and then even in our perseverance. And so we're talking about doctrines that, that reveal God to us and that glorify him. So yeah, it's important. Um, We couldn't just say, well, whatever, we don't need to worry about how salvation works. Like that, this is some pretty important stuff. And disagreements on these kinds of subjects don't negate a person's salvation. I mean, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in faith and comes to him in faith can be saved. And we cover that extensively early on in some of our first few episodes where the first one we did was on the gospel. We talk about assurance. We talk about eternal security, perseverance of the saints. We've done a series on that already. And so having a few disagreements in some of these areas doesn't put you or us outside of the body of Christ. But where the importance is, again, and what, what we believe, especially in these doctrines of grace, is they all really focus on the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And as you said uh, a moment ago here, Mike, these things are important because they help us to see who God is. They help us to understand who he is and ultimately brings the glory and the focus on him, on his work, on, on God's will, on, on the work of Christ, on the, on the work of the Holy Spirit in all these things. And so that no man may boast, that we, we are left no opportunity to boast. In fact, our last episode we did on total depravity really puts us in our place that way and shows us that apart from the glory of God in these things, we have nothing. I just want to go back to what you said about doesn't it doesn't like maybe separate us because 
and and I tell people this often when I talk about these doctrines. Um, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a Christian, right? If you're a, if you've believed in Him and trusted in Him and turned from your sin, you're a Christian. When we're, when we're talking about Calvinism, Arminianism, we're we're talking more about the inner workings of what happened when God saved somebody. And so an Arminian and a Calvinist can believe the exact same thing about and, and trust in Jesus in the same way. Amen. The, the same gospel message has gone out. But the difference is the inner workings of these things. And that's what we're digging into. And, and how and, we understand them, right? Yeah. 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 So it's, it's kind of like the... It's kind of like the back end behind the scenes stuff is sometimes how I'll put it. Um, so maybe we disagree on the inner workings of this behind the scenes, but we, we both have trusted in the living person, Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's what makes us a Christian. Even as Calvinists, we believe John 3.16 is in the Bible for a reason, right? Yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whosoever believes in him whosoever and that's often gets used well that means anyone can come well the whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life we we agree with that completely mm-hmm. Pro- where the where the nuance comes in maybe is who are the whosoever right? yeah how do they come to believe right yeah. yeah i mean i would agree with jesus when he says no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him so we start there right yeah. but again we've we've covered some of that in total depravity and that's actually a good tie-in if i can just interrupt yeah. you like that is um we've talked about total depravity last time and we've we saw that that men are unable and unwilling to come unless something happens the yeah. father draws them like you just said uh and and so what what we're going to do now in in the doctrine of election is we're going to see what God does to save these people who are, like we saw last time, hostile, alienated, dead. Um, I, I don't have a list of, of what we looked at last time before me here, but all of what we saw last time said men are in darkness with hard hearts. Now we're starting to see what God does to save these wicked people, including you and me, and, uh, and bring us to salvation. So mm-hmm. without this... We would be hopeless, but because of God's great love for us, he, he acted to save us, to initiate salvation, to, to actually bring about salvation for this certain group of people that scripture calls the elect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of ties in, what we're going to look at ties in with total depravity. It also just ties in with God's sovereignty over all things. So we talked about, I don't know what episode numbers these are, but... In a previous episode, we talked about God's sovereignty. Number eight, Lauren tells me, so thank you, Lauren. Number eight, podcast eight, talked about God's sovereignty, just kind of generally in all areas. Election is just now kind of narrowing the focus, and we're talking about God's sovereignty in salvation. And Mm -hmm. so he was sovereign over all things, which includes salvation. Now more narrowly, let's just talk about his sovereignty in election. And it is an area, a subject that is often difficult for people to accept and probably one of the ones that remains one of the last hurdles for someone to, I would say, embrace the doctrines of grace, to, to just say, yes, I see this in Scripture everywhere. I would still contend that once you get to that point, it's, it's hard to ever go back because once you, you see these doctrines in Scripture, they're everywhere. Old Testament and New Testament, God's sovereignty, God's election, God's will, his decretive will versus his perceptive will. We see these things all throughout. Why why do you think it is a a harder doctrine? I think one of the reasons would be ultimately is because as mankind, we, we like to make choices. We like to consider our freedom. We like to consider that, you know, we have that we have a will, right? And we've talked about that as well. We do have a will. The, f- the freedom of our will, the freedom of our choices, we want to make those choices. We want to be able to, th- there is an innate part, and I'm not pointing at Arminians over Calvinists in this way, but we all have pride. And we want to take responsibility for our work. We want to take responsibility in, in raising our families. We want to take responsibilities in a job well done. And there's a degree in which we want to be able to say, hey, I made the right choice, even if we don't use that language per se. But, and again, that doesn't, that's not just to an Arminian or, or a Calvinist. That, that goes for all of us. 
we deal with pride and I think that ties into our desire to make free choices. We want to protect our freedom. We want this idea of being an autonomous free being. But ultimately, and ironically, just, just earlier today in conversation, the, the, the point was brought out again that our view that, w- that we would have, it impugns God's character. It brings into question his character. And so often we want to protect God's goodness. We want to protect his reputation, mm-hmm. right? And so some of these things, doctrines are hard to accept. Well, if God only chooses some, then he's unfair. That's not just. I would argue to say that that has nothing to do with his justice. Mm-hmm. It, and the scripture never tells us that God has to be fair in these ways, but it has really nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of people just haven't, haven't seen this doctrine. Like one of the most frequent conversations that I have when someone's joining uh, our church is, uh, you know, I'm not too sure about this doctrine of election and, and we have a conversation about it. And, and if, you haven't, if you haven't really seen it before in scripture, um, if you haven't been taught these things, uh, it seems foreign, but what we're going to see here is that, that scripture is actually very clear and talks about it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so let's kind of, and, and I think today what we're going to just try to do is just really almost just do an overview of the scriptures. And we just want to almost overwhelm the listener with all of these times where God, without uh, being afraid at all of impugning his goodness, where he just says, I chose this person, I chose these people, I chose to save them. And so we're going to just see the term elect used. And and if we're going to be scriptural, we have to believe in election because God uses that word about himself in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we see it multiple times too, right? So I don't think anyone honestly listening to this denies or should be able to deny that election choosing that these terms are in scripture. Mm-hmm. So it's more a matter of then taking a look at what does the scripture say about them and then submit our thoughts and our ideas to what God has revealed in the Holy Scripture regarding these doctrines, these words. And then the question we should constantly ask, and we've been asking throughout the, the first episodes of the series is, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? And so that's what we want to look at regarding even the hard subjects like election. Great. And just to kind of introduce it then, I would say, here's what we'll see that the Bible teaches is that there's a group of people that God calls the elect. Um, In the New Testament, he calls them his church or Jesus calls them my sheep. These are the people that have been given by the father to the son as a a gift. And uh, that that these people are elected, which is the same word, the Greek word to choose. They're chosen unto salvation. And this election was part of God's decree from before the foundation of the world. And I think we, did we do an episode on God's decree? Um, So that was part of the sovereignty and decree in the first one of this series. Of this series. Okay. So, so it's part of that. And just like the decree, it's a, this election, according to scripture is unconditional. That is, it's not based on any condition in the people that are chosen. It's not based on what they're going to do. It's more based on God's freedom of inclination. God's choice is not based on what people are going to do, as you said. Rather, people are going to do this because of God's choosing. Yeah, God's choosing is going to... And I think that's important to get that in, yeah, to get that in in the proper order. Mm -hmm. God chooses, people do. But which one, and, and the reason I believe that's very important is because, again, if we're going to say that God will choose based on what he knows you will do, then for all eternity past, God's God's will is really already being determined by us before we even exist. Yeah. And it gets a little confusing there, but I think that's why it's important to really be careful how we say those things and not make it out to be, you know, what what we would know as open theism, right? Where God looks down the corridors of time, knows what you and I will do, and then kind of decrees according to that. Well, then we're already influencing and really controlling God's eternal decrees in a state of non-existence. Yeah. That, that, that does, if, if your intent is to do so or not, but that, that creates a very weak God and a very powerful man. Yeah. I, I have this uh, like half a quote in my head from like Lorraine Botner or something where he says that, that takes apostate men's 
deci- you know temporal decisions and makes them influence the the holy eternal god right yeah. you know, like it's it just turns things right on its head yeah so election and we'll, we'll have to see this from scripture but election that that scripture teaches is unconditional it's not based on the foreknowledge of faith or anything that that god knows it's based on god's decree it's based on his will his good pleasure and this election results in salvation it 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 results in faith um we are elected in order that we might believe we are not elected because we believe uh, you know right. god doesn't choose those who chose him he chose those and then they choose him yeah so yeah let's look at the just what the scripture says about election and we're just going to kind of hit the scriptures here so what does the scriptures teach about election and what we'll see here is that first of all starting in the old testament that there's election of certain people to particular tasks or offices that God gives them. And then we're going to see that there's an election of Israel as God's people. God chooses Israel and chooses Abraham. And, and then even more particularly, there's the election of individuals that are, are brought in God chooses them in order that they might be part of the promised seed line and and these people ultimately end up being saved and through them Christ comes. So um, starting in the Old Testament, uh, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 9. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. So there we go. You are the Lord who chose Abram. You chose Abram. So how about Deuteronomy 7? Starting at verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Next one we have here is Deuteronomy 10.15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So there again, the Lord chose uh, the descendants and um, the, you know, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he set his love on them. And uh, there's no re- real reason given. In fact, it's you know in the verse we just read, it's almost like a negative reason. It's not because you were more in number. It's not because you were so great. It's it's just because God chose Abraham. And and we see through these scriptures, and we'll see it more and more again, it's unconditional. It's not because of greatness. It's not because of number. It's not because of size. It's it's not even because of obedience. It's not because they were going to be such a great people. Exactly. The yeah. gods, you know, the nation of Israel was very often disciplined for in their disobedience, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and as we talk about this, like people, people have um, you know, almost like no problem with God choosing of the whole world, just Noah or of the whole world, just Abraham. Mm-hmm. There was lots of people in the world. He just chose Abraham. He just chose Noah. And, um, and people kind of don't have a problem with that. But then now he chooses, uh, you know. Some people want to say a handful. He chooses a multitude of people yeah. to save out of this um, totally depraved and wicked world. And he's going to bring them to heaven to be with him. And now all of a sudden it, it's a problem. But he, he he did the same thing in the Old Testament. He's just acting yeah. in the same ways that he has acted always. And even when we look at him choosing the nation of Israel and and through that nation revealing his law, his purposes, the sacrifices... um there were many pagan nations in the world at that time who lived and died who were not chosen, who never got to hear about his elect, his 
I was going to say election, but about his his grace and, and his way of redemption that he was revealing to the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And those people perished in in their sin. And yet again, do we have a problem with, with that teaching? No, most most people do not. Mm-hmm. Right? And so here again, as we continue on, I would say we're trying to establish a foundation to be consistent in how we view this language. Mm-hmm. So Amos 3, 1 and 2 says, hear this, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So the Lord has kind of chosen, and, and actually the, the New American Standard Bible there does translate it there, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. And so the Lord has chosen um, only Israel out of all those nations. Genesis 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Okay, I have chosen Abraham. Um, Again, Genesis uh, 17, 19 to 21. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And so God's going to just choose just Isaac. He's not going to choose Ishmael. He's going to only choose Isaac. And the covenant that he made with Abraham is going to continue through Isaac but not through Ishmael. Um, now, we, you know, we could go and see God choosing different people out of Israel to do certain tasks and to, um, to, to bear certain offices. He, you know, he chose, he chose Aaron and, and, um, and his descendants and the Levites to be priests. Um, but all of, all of those verses doesn't, doesn't mean that God doesn't also choose, which we, we've seen in these scriptures, that he chooses people in order that they might be saved. And so when you think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God enters into a covenant with them that he's going to bless them and do them good. It's this salvific covenant that I'm going to be your God and you and your descendants are going to be my people. And uh, that that shows an election that's that's unto salvation in the Old Testament. And again, it's it's only these restricted people because nobody deserves election. Um, this is, everyone deserves God's wrath. Everyone deserves judgment. Uh, but grace in grace, God elects some people in order to save them. And so that's kind of what we see in the old Testament. There's election of individuals. We didn't look at a lot of scriptures on that, but there's some election of individuals to certain tasks and offices. But then there's this special election of Israel because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, they, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are elected to salvation. And also as we get into the New Testament and see it in more detail, we're going to see that even within Israel, there was an election unto salvation. There was an, right. a saved group of people within Israel. But now let's go uh, to the New Testament. And we, we just see really a continuation of what we saw before. And it really starts with Jesus in the Gospels choosing the twelve. Um, that he names apostles. And so I think we have that in Luke 6.13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Great, okay. Uh, John chapter 6 and verse 70 uh, says this, uh, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In John thirteen eighteen, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. 
He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, great. So there again, Jesus has chosen the 12 and uh, no, and not any other, even of the disciples. And then what about John 15, 16 and 19, Lauren? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. And verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, so again, Jesus chose um, the 12. I, I like that it says there, like, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I th- and that's the way that this works all the way along. And then that's just the way normal language works. You know, we don't... We don't say we chose somebody when in, in reality they chose us, right? But mm-hmm. Jesus kind of is explicit here. You did not choose me. I chose you. And, and he chose them that they would bear fruit, that their fruit would remain, and that God would answer their prayer. And, uh, and he chose them out of the world. And uh, because of that, they're, not, they're no longer of the world. And the world hated them. So there's this this choosing, uh, you know, a great text on this is Matthew eleven twenty five to twenty seven, where um, uh, well actually, why don't you read that for us, Lauren? At that time, Jesus declared, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father." And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Just such a great passage there. Jesus calls the the Father Lord of heaven and earth, and uh, he's thankful even that, you know, that these cities who haven't repented, that the, even in this chapter, there's this rejection of Christ happening in Matthew 11, and Jesus is thankful that God is kind of working according to what's well-pleasing in his sight. And, uh, and so these people, these things, haven't been revealed to the wise and intelligent, to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, but it has been revealed to the, the infants, the disciples of Jesus, because this was the Father's good pleasure. And then Jesus kind of almost comforts himself in this context and says, um, you know, nobody can know me unless the father reveals me and uh and then what then what i do kind of the reverse of that and and the ones that the father gives me i then reveal the father to them and uh and even in the the esv here the that word chooses um anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him so um, just a, a powerful passage. Now, right after that, Jesus is going to give this great universal invitation to everyone who wants to come and um, and find rest, and he's going to give them rest. But so God's sovereignty and this this free will of call of the of the gospel, there, there's no contradiction here, at least not none that our Lord sees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he recognizes if if anyone's going to come, it's going to be because the Lord of heaven and earth has. Um, opened these people's eyes so that they can come, so that they will come. In Matthew twenty two fourteen says, "For many are called, but few are chosen." Yeah, and uh, again, a great a great verse. I'll often get questions about this one. What, what's this all about? Um, I think this is speaking about a general call of the gospel. Many are called. The the gospel is going to go out to many people, even. At this point, we might even say maybe not all people, not every single person in the world is going to hear the gospel. Um, but many are. But of that many, only, Jesus says, few are chosen. In other words, few are going to be brought to actual salvation. And so this is a, you know, typically when we use the word calling, as we'll see even later in this series, calling is typically a more narrow thing that that actually grants life and salvation. And so often the scripture will say, like, consider your calling. And it's speaking about consider how you came to saving faith. Consider how God 
brought you and made you alive with Christ. But sometimes, like this verse, the the idea of calling is this general call of hearing the gospel. Not everyone who hears the gospel responds. Um, so many are called, many are going to hear the gospel, but few are going to respond, and, and those are the chosen. Next passage here is Matthew 24, 21 through 24. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So the idea here that unless the tribulation had been cut short, nobody would be saved, nobody would be delivered from that time, but it is going to be cut short for the sake of the elect. And uh, in that time, there's going to be false things happening, false signs and wonders, false Christ. It would, it would lead people astray. And it, it, it's such a great deception that's going to happen that even the elect would be led astray. But Jesus kind of says, if possible. And, uh, and the idea there, it seems to me, to me anyways, that the idea is that it's not possible that the elect would be led astray. A rhetorical question, but again, identifying the elect as his special people. Yeah, this group of people for whom the entire tribulation time is kind of controlled by God so that they will all be saved. Mm-hmm. Then right. he says in Matthew 24, the portion of scripture from 29 to 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and he says in verse 31, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Okay, so at the end of the time, God's going to gather his elect, these people that he's chosen for salvation. And then a great passage on uh, calling and election, really, and really just such a great chapter, 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 1, I think we've got verse 26 to 31 here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Great. And, you know, I was saying earlier, I'll try not to say too much about these verses, but just such a, a great section here. Consider your calling. You know, consider the the way that God has saved the people from Corinth. And, um, and, and then Paul uses that almost interchangeably. He switches from talking about calling to who was chosen. And so who did God choose? Well, the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, um, things that are not. He chose those people and he, and he called them. He saved them. And he did that to really to humble man. And, and so mm-hmm. that nobody would boast so that there'd be no boasting that, oh, I was, you know, the reason I'm saved is because I was smarter than those other sinners. Well, and it ties into what we even talked about when we were looking at a few of those verses in the Old Testament. His choosing was not based on the stature, the wealth, obedience, or anything like that of man. Mm-hmm. It's based, again, on his own good pleasure. And in this case, he specifically outlines, you know, Paul is ad- addressing that. It, it has nothing to do with these qualities or qualifications that man has. Mm-hmm. And, and the Corinthians were starting to, to kind of um, almost boast in this kind of worldly wisdom. They were being tempted that way. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Think about the way God chose the weak things, the despised things. And it's really because of him that you're in Christ. Yeah. And, and so... And he did this, he designed salvation this way, choosing for the most part these weak and foolish and 
um, base people out of the world in order to show that it's his grace that's doing this. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just, but, but just, you can't help but see this, you know, so many times in this passage, but God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen. And, uh, and never once, you know, man has chosen. Now they responded to the gospel, but why did they respond? Because yeah. of God's choice. And again, that's an important distinction to highlight there. God has chosen not because these people chose him first. It never states that. He has mm-hmm. chosen the weak, the foolish, the the things that are not wise, all these things, never because those chose him. It's the opposite. His choosing enables yeah. us to choose him, then, if you want to use that language. Yeah, good. Um, such an important passage, Ephesians 1 and uh, verses three to six. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, that even as there is kind of a um, a just as, the, the idea is, here. I'm going to show you these blessings that you have in the heavenly places. And so Paul starts to list these blessings. The first one he thinks about in verse four is he the Father chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. And then verse 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure, or sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reading that wrong, according to the purpose of His will. So, um, He chose us, God chose us, before the foundation of the world, and why did he choose us, or, or like what was the end to which he chose us, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And then there's that word predestined. Well, I think we'll talk about that in more detail later in this series. But God chose us in order that we'd be holy and blameless. That seems to be speaking about our glorification, that ultimately we're going to stand before God holy Um, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself. And so God decided beforehand that we would be adopted into his family and, um, and that, that in that adoption, we would come to him. And again, what is this according to the kind intention of his will, not according to uh, the foreseen faith um, that we would have or anything like that. But according to the kind intention of his will, uh, the father chose us. So really important passage and, and, um, uh, notoriously difficult to kind of get around that one. Next passage here, second Timothy two, verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Great. So, um, actually, let me, can you read that one again for us here, Lauren? I, I kind of missed, I was looking at, I was thinking we didn't do uh, Thessalonians. We should have done those, the two verses in Thessalonians, but they're not in our notes here. Second Timothy two verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Okay, great. Yeah. For the sake of the elect. Uh, the New American Standard translates that one for the sake of those who are chosen. Same again, same Greek word, chosen, elect, and um, you know this is great. You know sometimes people say, well, if God just chooses people, then um, then why bother with evangelism? And uh, Paul says here, actually, it works the other way. The reason I do evangelism and endure is because there's this group of people called the elect and they're going to get saved and I want God to use me to save them. And so it kind of ties into what we were talking about at the beginning about prayer. Paul looks at evangelism in the same way. God is sovereign, not therefore I won't do anything. It's therefore I want him to use me to accomplish his sovereign purposes. So I'm going to endure all kinds of affliction for the sake of these elect that they also might be saved that that they might obtain salvation it's not this election is an election that we're going to see is is to salvation and so uh, really important there um thessalonians 
uh, chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. He says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul knows these people have been chosen because when I preached, they didn't just hear the word as the word of men, but they they heard it as God's word and the Holy Spirit convicted them and they were saved. And so I know that they were chosen. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 13, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, kind of the same idea. So I, I thank God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So again, God chose you to be saved. And so we thank him when we think of you mm-hmm. because it's something that God's done. In Romans eight, twenty-nine to thirty, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Has yeah, such a great passage, and I think we'll want to dig into that one in detail, uh, maybe a little bit more next time. But that's just, I I think that's just a sampling. I think there's more, even I was remembering a few just kind of as we kind of went through there. Um, But that's just a sampling of what the Old Testament and the New Testament say about election. So again, if we want to be biblical, we have to have some kind of an understanding of this doctrine of election. And we'll continue on talking about election in the next episode as well. And, and we'll dig into some of this and, and expound some of these scriptures more to show why we believe in the doctrine of unconditional election in regards to salvation. But we've also seen throughout the, the, the scriptures that we've read today in the conversation here in, in this episode, the reality of God electing, God choosing throughout scripture old testament new testament nations individuals electing for choosing for office choosing for a lot of different purposes and again we tie that in and we ask that you stay with us in this area in regards to continuing on being consistent in how we define these terms and use these terms if god chose israel not because of anything they had done likewise he is choosing in the, in the New Testament unto salvation, not because of anything we have done or choices we've made, but because of his purpose, his pleasure, his will. Good, yeah, and, and just kind of thinking about defining, I, I've got a couple of definitions here on, of what we're talking about. And, and again, these are systematic theologians trying to summarize the whole teaching of Scripture. And uh, Wayne Grudem, for example, says, Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I think that's a good definition of what Scripture teaches on election. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, a little more fuller definition, he says, it may be defined as that eternal act of God, whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure, and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and of eternal salvation. More briefly, it may be said to be God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about election. Now, what we're going to see um, next time then when we come back to this, cause, because this this might require, might even require another couple of episodes here, but... Um, when we come back to this, what we want to do is kind of answer some objections. Uh, there's there's kind of three main objections to the doctrine of election where people kind of disagree with the way that we just defined election. And uh, what they try to do is what 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 we often see is people will try to say that that election is not at all connected with salvation. So that there God sure God chooses people, but He doesn't really choose them that they'd be saved he just almost 
chooses them in some undefined way and then they're going to be saved or almost like they get saved and then he chooses them. And so they, they kind of make this separation between the, the choosing and the salvation or other times what, what you'll see is people will say, well, God doesn't choose individuals to be saved. He chooses groups of people. And, uh, you, you know, you get that, you, you've you heard this like, um, this kind of like ferry boat kind of thing, like the ferries on the way to the island. And so God chooses that if, if you're on the ferry, you're going to get to the other island on the other side. And so everyone who gets on the boat kind of is the chosen. And, and so there's this choosing of the whole group that gets on the boat and then the boat gets to the destination. And so there's kind of a, a little thing like that. And so the idea is God chooses everyone who's in Christ and they're going to be saved. And then the third uh, major thing that the kind of tries to undermine our definition of election is is this idea about foreknowledge. And so sometimes people will say, well, God chose people because he foreknew their faith or he foreknew mm. what they would do. He, he knew that they would hear the gospel and respond well. And so he chose those who chose him. And it's based on foreknowledge. And so we're going to talk about what is what is the Bible talking about when it talks about foreknowledge. Great. And with that, then we would like to wrap up this episode and again, encourage you to check out the Christian podcast community, which is a ministry of striving for eternity. And while you're there, you can also check out multiple different podcasts and just a a shout out to some other podcasts there. Today, I would like to just do a shout out to the Truth Be Known podcast. Truth Be Known podcast, you can find that on the Christian podcast community as well. And this podcast aims to warn of dangerous doctrines and provide biblical apologetics to overcome those doctrines. And it is hosted by two brothers, two pastors, Nathaniel Jolly and Eki Tepsipornchai. Two great brothers. You can follow them on social media, on Twitter. You might get in trouble if you uh, follow them too closely on Twitter. Um, Though they try to dissuade People from, from arguing, they seem to find themselves in that mix quite often. <laughs> but no, all joking aside, two great brothers. I've listened to a number of their episodes and do really enjoy it. So I encourage you to go there and check that out as well. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add at this point, Mike? I would just say, well done pronouncing Eki's last name there. Very, very, <laughs> very well done. I've, I've run that through my head many times. <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe he will listen to this and he can tell me. He, if I got it correct, he would say it rhymes with tech support guy, that, and that's what he's told me. In the, <laughs> that's what he told me in the past. So I was kind of running that through my head. Eki Tep Support Chai. Yeah, very good. Of all the ways I could have pronounced that, Eki, I hope I I did it yeah. did it the way you like it. But yeah. but is it Jolie or Jolly? <laughs> it's, it's well, we can call him. I'm sure whatever we call him, he's been called worse. And I, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> I I've seen it. <laughs> Some but good, Nathaniel's brothers. a church planter up in Alaska, in, in Homer, Alaska. He, he planted a church there, a Baptist church, and he pastors that church there. And Eki, Pastor Mike, actually went to seminary with him, correct? Yeah, that's right. We had at least a couple classes together for sure. So, so you had a major influence on him. And it's good to see that that's... <laughs> I think it was probably the other way. But all in all seriousness, great, great uh, gentlemen, great podcast, great contact, content. Good job, guys. Keep it up. And again, thank you for tuning in and listening and check out the uh, other episodes in this series as we continue the series on examining Calvinism and hopefully shed some light as to what the Bible says on these doctrines.